0: Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This week, my guest is the one and only legendary Daniel Pink. And today we're talking about his new book called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Now, Dan is one of the most influential authors of our time the New York Times bestseller of When and Drive. I think he's got four or five others. We've got a new book that is so powerful because regret is something that we all feel, and it is largely misunderstood, right? The idea, the very utterance of the word makes so many of us shudder, but it turns out that this powerful emotion, if harnessed, can be a driving force for change in our life. It's universal, it's healthy, and it's part of being human. So if you're interested in hearing about this, learning from Dan and channeling the idea, the power of regret to help your life, this episode is for you. Dan is a genius, and I can't wait for you to experience him and his new work here. Again, the power of regret looking backwards, how it moves us forward. Hey, before we get into the show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Creative Live. Creative Live is the best online platform for creative entrepreneur and freelance learning, hands down. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, a Creative Live subscription includes access to more than 2000 classes in art, photography, filmmaking, design, business, entrepreneurship, and more. And those classes are taught by the world's top experts. People who have won Pulitzer Prizes, people who have won Grammys, Oscars. Uh, Emmys, you name it—it's where the best and the best go to teach. Now, since day one, Creative Live has always been committed to streaming content for free for those who can't afford the subscription that gives you access to all 2,000 classes. So, in 2021, Creative Live doubled down and launched a free program for for those who could not afford it. That free program is called Back to Biz, and that helps specifically small businesses, entrepreneurs, and freelancers come back from economic challenges presented over the past two years of the pandemic. That free content is available. If you want to check that out at creativelive.com slash back to biz, that's B A C K T O B I Z creative live.com slash back to biz. So check it out and let's get back into the show. Dan Pink. Thank you so much for joining us again. Congrats on the new book. We're happy to have you.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back on the show.
0: So before we started recording, um, we were talking about the listenership of the show here, the viewership as well. Some people choose to watch this and others listen. Um, and of all of the books that you've got out there in the world, of which there are many and numerous, you've c- covered a lot of topics. We're going to talk a lot today about the topic of regret. and. Uh, As for a handful of people who aren't familiar with your work, you're very popular, so most folks will know it. But for those who are new to your work, um, can you start off, before we dig into this incredible topic around regret, can you start off by orienting us to how you describe yourself uh, and the work that you do in the world, specifically around books and and your other interests?
1: So, I'm a writer. I write books. In the last (laughs) 20 years, I've written seven books as you say, they're on a whole array of different topics, whatever I happen to be curious about at that moment, there's no grand strategic plan about one following the other, following the other, believe me. (laughs) Uh, And so I've written books about the the changing nature of work. I've written books about the rise of why creative and empathic skills are going to be more important in the workplace than ever before. I've written about Science of motivation. I've written about a book about it takes a new approach to selling. I've written. I wrote a graphic novel career guide. I wrote a book about uh, instead of a how-to book, I wrote a a when-to book about the science of timing. And the latest book is a book that explores our most misunderstood emotion, which is regret. Um, So, um, (laughs) and believe me, as you can tell by that dog's breakfast of titles, there is not a plan guiding any of this.
0: Well, it's beautiful. I do want to talk about your creative process a little later in the show. Um, but given that wide range of topics and your the process through which you, you have chosen those, you recently landed on regret. And one of the reasons I was very excited to have you back on the show is what I have learned um, from listening to our... Listenership and interacting with this community, the creative community, for my entire life, virtually my entire work life, is the concept of regret is an, an incredibly powerful mm-hmm. motivator, and it can be incredibly destructive when you realize you've you know missed opportunities and and so it's especially relevant, yeah. especially relevant to our audience. Um, put through the lens of one precious life, that puts a ton of pressure on on us and I think that that serves its purpose in some ways and it can also be very paralyzing in another. Yeah. So maybe you Good could point. start off with you know sharing a little bit about some of the common threads that you saw. is is our particular community her listening right now? or is this drama around the power of regret? Is this unique to to us creators? or is this you know does this match some of the things that you learned about the power of regret? In your research
1: well as much as i don't want to threaten your audience's feelings of specialness uh (laughs) it is it is not unique um and in some ways chase that's the point um one of the things that you see and you know the way i I wrote i I did a bunch of different the bunch of different legs on which this book stands um one of them is about 50 years of science on the nature of regret in neuroscience and in developmental psychology and in social psychology and in cognitive science and whatnot. And what it says pretty clearly is that um, regret is ubiquitous, uh, it's one of the most common emotions that people have. Um, it is arguably the most common negative emotion that people express, it is widespread across ages, across genders, across cultures, across income levels. Um, Indeed, the only people who don't have regrets are little kids because their brains haven't developed, Uh, people with neurodegenerative disorders because their brains don't work functionally, and sociopaths. Uh, Everybody else has regrets. Um, And so it is common. And the other thing about it, which is a little bit of a puzzle, is that, I mean, obviously, regret is unpleasant. I don't like experiencing regret. Um, So why is this thing that's so unpleasant so ubiquitous? And the answer is pretty straightforward. It's because it's useful if we treat it right. And you did a nice job of articulating some of the polls, P-O-L-E-S, about how to treat it right. Like Sometimes we just ignore our regrets and there's a reigning philosophy out there that says that you should ignore your regrets, that you should never look back, that you should always be positive. Um, And that's a preposterously bad idea. That leads to delusion. On the other hand, it's also possible that we can overindex in our regrets, that we can ruminate on them, that we can wallow in them, that we can luxuriate in them. That's also a bad idea. What we want to do is we want to understand why regret is part of our cognitive machinery and then use it effectively. And that's the key to understanding the, 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 the transformative power of this misunderstood emotion.
0: Well, that makes me want to just jump right to the first page that I dog-eared and scribbled on um, in my uh, in my consuming of the book, and that's the three benefits mm. of regret to pose benefit to pose. Regret as a benefit, you know, yeah. I think that that's obviously the backdrop that you just shared with us, but that the concept of that is so foreign because the word regret has, yeah. is so loaded culturally Exactly. For us. So exactly. So tip this on its head for us, because right now I'm thinking about some things that I regret and I'm running it through this filter and it's, you're right. It's hard to admit and it's hard to like pause long enough on the word regret to look for the, I guess the, the the beauty in it or the value in it but you've clearly found some and uh, so share with us if you would you know these three benefits that are the cornerstones well the,
1: i mean work. the the three sort of broad benefits are it helps us become better decision makers so um and and so um let, let's take um negotiation is a good example um let's say that you're negotiating and you finish the negotiation if you then think back on that negotiation and say, what do I regret about this negotiation? So you you invite this negative feeling. You don't bat it away. You actually summon it. (laughs) The next time around, you're a better negotiator. I mean, all kinds of research like that. Uh, So in terms of um, decision-making, when you, if you've actually consciously reflect, like there's certain kinds of like cognitive biases out there, escalation of commitment to a failing course of action. Confirmation bias, hindsight bias. If you go back and reflect and regret, oh man, I really messed up by succumbing to confirmation bias. Summon the negative emotion. You're more likely to overcome it in the future. Problem solving. Um, enormous amount of experimental evidence of problem solving, where you give people problems to solve, you then induce regret. Hey, what do you regret about this? Again, invite the feeling. They do better next time around. Uh, so problem solving. Um, there's some stuff on strategy. Uh, you're better strategists if we reflect on our regret rather than any them, uh, And also a sense of meaning. Um, regret, when we d- reckon with our regrets properly, they deepens our sense of meaning in life. So huge numbers of positive benefits to reckoning with it properly. But properly is the key. Um, it doesn't happen automatically. We have to know how to do it systematically.
0: Well, that's a logical next step. So systematically managing our Feelings of regret seems like a tall order from the outside, and to someone who's walking down a a jogging path right now, or you know, listening to this on the subway, like how do you marshal the proper use of regret? I mean, there's there's this amazing the the subhead just to share people share with people uh, who aren't looking at the book as I am right now. The book is called The Power of Regret. Sub is how looking backward. Moves us forward. So this is a tricky. This is a tricky proposition because done done without the your guidance, we can easily spiral into totally what, what if. And so this is totally. a, this is why I was fascinated by your choice of you know this this work is because to do it invites a host of problems. To do it well extracts the value, and it's a it's a tricky proposition. So g- give us some guidance.
1: Well, um, you're exactly, it's actually not as tricky as we think. And it's the kind of thing that if you're, it depends on how long your subway ride is. If it's more than, (laughs) if it's, if it's, if it's more than one more stop, we can totally get it done in that time. If you're, if you're, if you're walking on your jogging path, you're going to be fine. Um,
0: Give us uh, the, give us the medium version. We don't want the short version. We're here for long form. This is not TV. So tell us, Dan. (laughs)
1: Okay, so there, there, are three, there are three ways to reckon with our retrospective, our previous regrets. There, there are three steps in the process. But it is pretty simple, Chase, seriously. Uh, I like to look at it as inward, outward, forward. Inward, outward, forward. So what is inward? Inward is you have to change the way, reframe the way you think about the regret and yourself. So let's say you have a regret. I don't know. What would be one of the regrets that your listeners have? I, I regret that I, um, I, oh, I, I didn't start a business. I took the
0: corporate job. Okay. That was the safe path instead right. of pursued my passion.
1: Okay. So, um, so, so, that's a, so let's say, reframe the way you think about that. When we talk to ourselves, we're brutal. We're vicious. We talk to ourselves with, with a degree of almost evil that we would never bring to bear on another human being um that's a bad idea um there's there's no evidence that that's effective if it were effective i might be able to excuse it but it's not effective um nor is boosting your self-esteem effective what's what's more effective is something called self-compassion uh which is the work i encourage your listeners to check out the work of kristen neff at the university of texas who pioneered this line of research um what self the best thing you can do to start is how do you think about yourself and your regret which is to treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt believe me i've collected regrets from thousands of people all over the world if you're having a regret about staying in a lackluster job and not following your passion you are not alone believe me you are not alone that is a very common regret treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt recognize that your regret is part of the human condition and also recognize that this doesn't fully define you you have other aspects of yourself that like you can't you can't take a single decision or indecision and say this 100% encapsulates who I am as a human being so and that relieves you to go to the next step which is this um, outward there is a very strong argument for disclosure um, very strong argument for talking about and even writing about your regret. When we disclose, it's an unburdening. That's obviously, that seems pretty obvious. What's more though, is that disclosure is a surprising way to build affinity with others. We think that when we disclose our mistakes and our missteps and our screw ups, people will like us less, that's generally wrong. Uh, there's fine arts of evidence, once again, shows that people tend to like us more. They think more highly of us. The other thing that's important about disclosure is that when we, that, 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 that emotions in general and negative emotions in particular are blobby and amorphous. Um, that's what makes positive emotions feel good. It's kind of magical. You know, you're not defining it, you're not making it concrete. You're uh, joy or awe or something like that. That's why it feels so good. It's also why negative emotions feel so shitty is because they're amorphous, they're abstract. And so one of the things you can do to in some ways defang negative emotions is to convert them from this blobby abstraction into concrete words, which are less fearsome. So write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days, or tell somebody about the regret. That begins the sense-making process. So we've gone inward, you're treating yourself with kindness rather than, you are disclosing outward, you're making sense of it. The final thing is is to extract a lesson from it. And we tend to be pretty bad about extracting lessons for ourselves, uh, solving our own problems. Um, We're too close to it. But we tend to be pretty good at solving other people's problems. So what you want to do is you want to do something called self-distancing, which is a way to sort of think about yourself as another person. So you could say, um, you could talk to yourself in third person. There's some interesting research on that. So instead of saying, what should I do? You say, what should Chase do? Um, You could think about what does the you of 10 years from now, zooming out that way, what does the you of 10 years from now want you to do? Um, The best technique is if your best friend came to you with this dilemma, what would you tell her to do? And when you do that, people always know. And so what it might mean is, and this particular one is this, hey, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. This is a pretty common kind of regret. It doesn't fully define you. Second, talk about it, make sense of it. What is it about staying, starting your own thing, pursuing your passion that is meaningful to you? Um, you know, what? Why do you? why do you wanna do this? Make sense of it. And then finally extract a lesson from it. And the lesson could be, you know what? Maybe I should start a side hustle for the next six months and see how it goes. Maybe I should, you know, and, and, uh, and that's it. And all that does is like very calmly normalizes the, the regret and uses it, you know, and sort of enlists it as a tool rather than, you know, shrink from it as a threat.
0: So these, sen- these, these ideas are obviously exceptionally useful. For what I would consider regret with a small r, okay, career choices, you know, friend choices, how yep. we behaved in a particular moment, but I know from some of my own research and writing, and have um, it has been powerful for me this this ultimate regret with the capital R as at, at the end of our lives. Hmm you know how do we look back you know and and the chief regret according to some research that when i wrote my last book was the chief regret was in many senses living a life that other people had prescribed for us rather than our own and right. do you believe that these these this same formula the same you know inward outward forward the you know the the leveraging of regret how does that all reconcile at the end with the regret of capital R? Are there big things, and and do you advocate therefore that we can elim- potentially eliminate this capital R regret at the end of our days if we're essentially doing the lightweight work along the way? Is one is one a cure? I, for I, I, I
1: think so. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. I believe in like the. the I'm not sure. I buy the premise of a capital R regret. Right. Um, you know what I found is that people tend to regret the same things over and over again. Um, well, there are a number of different, the number of different things in response to that. Number one is that I have a certain skepticism about deathbed regrets, um, because I'm not sure, um, how accurately they're recorded. And I also think it's kind of late to be dealing with your regrets when you're (laughs) drawing your last breath. It doesn't seem that useful to me. Um, I'd rather have people reckon with it a little earlier than that. And so, um, one of the things that you see that I've seen in my own research is that, is that people tend to have the same four regrets over and over again. Uh, and they have regrets about not doing the work. So, you know, I didn't save enough money. I didn't get enough education. I didn't treat myself, my health well enough. They have regrets. A lot of them about boldness. I didn't speak up. I didn't ask that person out on a date. I didn't start that business. They have regrets about morality. I bullied somebody. I cheated on my spouse. They have regrets about connection. I didn't reach out to that person. I didn't maintain that relationship. Um, and that's pretty much what happens over and over again. And what you want to try to do to your point is that you want to do the late, lightweight work early to avoid those kinds of regrets. And so it's possible for us again, we look backward and say, what do we learn from what we've done in the past? We can look forward and say, how can I make decisions now that will avert some of my regrets in the future? However, we have to do that properly. We cannot avoid every regret. We shouldn't try to avoid every regret. So I don't want people agonizing, saying, oh my God, what will I regret more, buying a blue car or buying a gray car? What will I regret more, um, You know, uh, going on a, a, a one-week vacation to place A or place B? I don't want people agonizing over that. because. It's pretty clear to me that the person they are in 10 years or 20 years, and I'm hoping that they're not on their deathbed there. It's almost irrelevant whether they are, but let's just hope that in 10 years, you're not on your deathbed. I think it's a pretty safe bet what the, you have 10 years and so now is going to care about. You're not going to care one whit about whether you bought a blue car or a gray car, but you are going to care about whether you reached out to a friend or whether you let an important relationship dissolve. You are going to care about doing the wrong thing. You are going to care about not taking a sensible risk. You are going to care about not establishing a, a sturdy foundation and that's it. And so when we look forward, we should try to anticipate those four core regrets and pretty much chill out about everything else.
0: <laughs> is
1: that the, is that the essential
0: idea with, um, I'm, I was drawn to the Viktor Frankl quote at the, the anticipating regret chapter, which is live as if you were living already for the second time. And as if you had acted the first time as wrongly (laughs) as you're about to act now.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think that's especially true for for certain kinds of moral regrets um, and certain kinds of regrets of of action. And it even works with even tiny regrets like, okay, should I just lose my shit and yell at somebody right now? And chances are you shouldn't, um, even though you might want to. so I think that's generally pretty good guidance. But when it comes to the enduring regrets, it's pretty clear for most people what they're gonna regret in 10 years or 20 years, or God forbid on their deathbed. And it's not gonna be these small things. It's gonna be these bigger things. And so act now to try to avert those.
0: Is it, is it true in your experience that we most often regret not doing something rather than doing something? Did you find well, that in your research?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a huge finding in all of the research. So I also did a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population. We sampled four thousand four hundred eighty-nine Americans, weighted sample so it reflected the glorious demographics of the United States of America. Asked people a bunch of questions, and that came out wide, loud, and clear. It's come out. It's come out in the previous research too. And there's an age effect here. When we're young, we tend to have equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction, equal numbers of regrets about what we did and regrets about what we didn't do. But as we age, oh my, the inaction regrets take over the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's two to one regrets about inaction rather than action. Wow.
0: Wow. So what? If, let's just pull on that thread just a little bit more now. So how then maybe this is secondarily in the research. How then do people feel about actions taken that did not pan out relative to inaction?
1: Good question. That's a, a really, really order. good It's a really, really good question. and I got it I didn't ask that question explicitly, but I got some of it anyway in this in this because I also collected nineteen, thousand regrets from people in one hundred and nine countries and it got some of that. To my surprise, okay, so so there are people who there are people who started, let's say started a business. let's use that one. Yep. There are people who started a business and it failed, and some people regret that. I shouldn't have started a business. I didn't know what I was doing. I had a shady business partner, et cetera, et cetera. And I really regret doing that, but there weren't that many. And there were even some who said, I started that business. It went south, but I tried sort of a bummer, but I tried, um, there was less, there was less of that. There people were less outcomeist than I expected them to be. Um, and I think what bugs people about these boldness regrets, is not this fantasy that everything in their life is gonna be perfect if they had chosen, raw, chosen better. It's that they don't know. They had a moment in their life when they could do something, when they could step up, when they could try, when they could show some courage, and they didn't do it. And that's what bugs them.
0: That is about as close as I've ever heard you, Dan Pink, give advice. You always take this research approach, and like the the data says, and the, my interview said. But can you state that as is this is this you giving advice, or is this me putting a veneer on it that's not actual?
1: No, I mean I, I, I'm 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 happy to give. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm I'm happy to offer. I'm happy to offer advice. Um, I just think that you know, I, and, I, and I will answer your question directly. But let me let me offer a lengthy Please. and irrelevant preamble. The uh, <laughs> The, I I think that when anybody makes a claim, on of any kind, we should all be generously skeptical, and listen listen to it, but also say to that person, "How do you know?" And so I always like to, where I can, I always like to show my work, um, and say, "Okay, here's how I know," because I think it confers greater credibility to the claims that I'm making, and I want people to evaluate. The the sources. I want people to evaluate the basis on which I'm 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 offering these these claims. The same thing is true when it comes to advice. I'm I'm totally happy offering advice. I just want people to know that the advice is the advice is based on not a, my intuition and not my tiny little slice of experience as one human being among eight billion on the planet, but um, based on something more comprehensive. And so I do think now. Here I'll answer your question. I do think there's a lesson there. And I think the lesson is that we should have in general, a slight bias for action, uh, a slight bias for doing things rather than standing by. I really do. Um, and it's especially true in our, in our professional lives, in our personal lives, in our romantic lives. Absolutely, I think that it's, it's generally, it's not gonna work out every time, but I think as a default, take the chance, go to the party, ask that person out, give it a try, I think as a general life philosophy, I think it's the way to go. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them goes to exactly what you were saying, which is that we have more inaction regrets and action regrets. So it's a way to extinguish those. The second thing, which I think is more intriguing, something that I have discovered myself is this, is that we, I feel like we're over indexed on planning and under indexed on acting in general, in terms of how we figure out our life. And so. You might say oh i want to start a business therefore i need to write a lengthy business plan and i need to make sure that i have two years of savings and i need to talk to a hundred people who've done this before and, I, and and those are not inherently bad ideas but i think that we can over plan and underact, and because acting is a form of planning you know when we act we figure stuff out and so the idea that for doing anything you have to figure it all out and then execute i think is wrong um i think it's wrong as a matter of how the world works, it's wrong because acting is a form of figuring stuff out, and so, and so I, I do think that the the lesson of these regrets is that we should have you know in general a, a kind of a bias for action.
0: That is, uh, I think the soundbite of our conversation. <laughs> I, and, and you know, and I like to extract those you know conceptually here on the fly because you know you have already said. You know, you talked to 19,400 people. You had, you know, 88,074, you know, regrets noted from 109 countries or whatever the data that you gave yeah. and and yet what I'm you know, what we're chasing is your your synthesis of these. Ideas. Oh, yeah. And and you know, go ahead.
1: Were you going to say something there? I thought no, no, that. I think that this, this uh, the synthesis is that I mean, the synthesis is relatively straightforward. Everybody has regrets. It makes you human. Treat it right. It makes you better don't wallow in them, don't ignore them, confront them. Uh, and then when you think about what people regret, it's the same things over and over again around the world, which reveal the, the four things that people, I think, need the most. And so when you start making decisions, focus on those things and don't worry about and don't worry about much else. And But I do think that it comes down to since we have this overwhelming amount of since, since most of the regrets. Okay, so we have these four categories of regrets. We've got foundation regrets, Boldness, regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. The two big, the two biggest categories are connection regrets and moral regrets. If only I'd reached out. If only I'd taken the chance. I think that suggests a bias for action. Reach out. If you're at a juncture and you're contemplating whether you should reach out, reach out. If you, if there's a sensible risk to be taken, probably a good idea to take it, um, because um, we tend to we tend to catastrophize the possibilities and not really reckon with the, the extended duller pain we have from not acting.
0: What what role did regret play in your life that made you want to write this book?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of it is that I was reckoning with a lot of my own regrets. Um, and that's and that's what got me doing it. I also think there is a time of life effect here in, in, in that I, I, I would not have written this book. I haven't been writing books for 20 years, to my astonishment. I, I I don't think I would have written this book in my thirties. I don't think I had enough mileage on me, but in my fifties, it felt somewhat inevitable because I had room to look back and I also had room to look forward and it's helped me reckon with some of my own regrets and, and change and change some of my behavior, particularly on, on connection regrets. That's the one where it's changed my behavior the most. Um, because I heard so many stories of people who had friendships or relationships or whatever, not romantic relationships, just like general, you know, relationships, um, that, Came apart, usually in undramatic ways, they drifted apart. Somebody wants to reach out, they don't. They think it's gonna be awkward. They think the other side's not gonna care. It drifts apart even more. And sometimes it's too late. And that really, really, really bumps people out. And so again, on that one, I do have a bias for action now. That if I'm, you know, contemplating should I reach out or should I not reach out, I reach out. That even that even arriving at that juncture has is the answer to the question. The fact that I've arrived at that juncture has delivered to me the answer. Reach out.
0: Very, very interesting. I think that this, you know, again, I think there's a there's an echo in your, and from what I'm seeing in some some previous work, but this overall action, I got a 90-10 rule. If I'm doing too much planning on a thing, I need to, you know, to 10x my action on that thing. Because mm. I, I, I think it's natural for us to, to all want to uh, be successful. But you know, in your work, you've talked about these, you know, these major human paradigms, and um, I'm wondering if did regret was regret your primary exploration, or did would this, was this some subset of you're looking at? You were looking at grief or trauma, or did you start out and end with grief? You're like, this is the thing, or sorry, start and end with regret, or was this a you know, the second side of a coin that you started, you started down a, a different path?
1: Um, well, I mostly, I, yeah, know, it was, it was almost all exclusively regret. I actually just, I mean, it's not quite in response. It's not quite your songs but I actually was, uh, um, I was actually working on a couple of years ago, an entirely different book, like about n- none of the above, not about negative emotions, not about emotions, about something completely different. And then as I started thinking about regret and having some life Kind of experiences that made me think about it even more, and then I started doing the research. I, th- I threw aside that that book, stopped working on it, and started anew with a new topic
0: because well, it was now,
1: so it was so compelling.
0: Yeah. Now, now we're in the creative process, which is one of my favorite parts of every conversation that I yeah. like to bring to bear here, and to decide. You know, you've you've talked about the number of books you've written. You just shared having a an idea that presumably, you know, again, I, I've done a couple of books, but it's a lot of work to get into a oh, book. Oh hell yeah! And, and, and <laughs> there are, there are. It's horrible. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a lift beyond what most people can comprehend. But to chuck aside something that you'd been working on for some time, and to now double down on regret, what? was so seductive about regret that you were willing to stop working completely on something that you'd been working on? Was it the universality of it? Was it the your personal experience? Some of the above, all of the above, more? Tell me more.
1: All of the above. Uh, part of it was that I couldn't get out of my head. That was one part. Um, I kept thinking about it and I realized how little I understood about it. And then when I looked at some of the research, I realized that there was a broader misunderstanding of it. Uh, there was a broader misunderstanding of regret as inherently harmful as, um, when I say broader, I mean, a sort of popular understanding, the science said something else and that intrigued me. What's more is I'm a big believer when, you know, yeah. let's go, we can talk more about the, the, the creative process and whatnot. I'm a big believer in sharing ideas and socializing ideas and testing ideas in public. Like I'm not too wigged out about people quote unquote stealing my ideas. Um, because I think that very rarely happens. I think it's actually really hard to steal ideas in some cases, not not in all cases, but in many cases. Um, and what I find is that when I share ideas, when I socialize them, they get stronger and they give me clues. And when I started talking very, not even before, before even writing the book, when it just says kind of, hey, you know, I've been thinking about regret and my regrets and da, da, da. I got a very robust reaction from people, mm. very robust. People opened up they engaged in ways that were pretty remarkable and that's happened even since the book has come out.
0: Yeah, it's, it's incredibly powerful. It's just, it was a seductive title and again, having played listener to thousands or maybe millions of students at creative live and, and just in my in my work also socializing ideas around creativity, this idea of regret is, I would say, um, people's experiences with their creative process is, you know, wildly different Mm -hmm. But the power that this, the regret from not taking action around this one precious life was by far the most dominant, um, you know, the most dominant experience that I get when, if I'm trying to understand a a miss, there's lots of positives, right? People are elated when they do pursue these things and when they, you know, they do the thing they're supposed to do in the world and it feels like life is happening for them rather than to, there's all kinds of that, but the universal negative emotion was regret. Yeah. So why are there so few books on it? Why is it, as our mutual friend Brene Brown says, the world needs this book that you wrote? Why is there so little on it?
1: Because we've been fed a bill of goods. Uh, We've been sold a bill of goods. Um, We've been sold this, this bill of goods that we should be positive all the time, that we should never look back, that we should always be optimistic, that we should never let negative dark thoughts into our head. And that's just wrong. Um, you know, and again, I mean, we have to be reasonable about it. You know, I'm all for positive emotions. I love positive emotions. We should have more positive emotions than negative emotions. But the idea that we should have only positive emotions is complete nonsense. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible recipe for living. Um, the, the negative emotions exist for a reason and we have to reckon with them. And so, you know, um, so, you know, think about fear. Fear helps keep us alive. It's a negative emotion, but I don't want to extinguish all my feelings of fear. You know it's like oh let me go cross this road against the oncoming traffic oh i'm not scared i'm then i'm dead right or you know even things like you mentioned you mentioned grief earlier um grief is a terrible emotion do, do i want to extinguish grief from the, the our emotional repertoire no because the reason we feel grief is because we feel love so it teaches us something uh, imagine a world where we didn't grieve. Oh, my father just died. I don't give a shit. You know, oh, look, my dog just died. Who cares? You know, I mean, that's a horrible world. Um, And then, um, um, you know, and the same thing is true with regret. Regret is what regret does, even though it hurts, it causes discomfort. It clarifies what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. And while we might want the instruction and we might want the clarification, we can't get it without a little of that discomfort. The discomfort is what allows the clarification and the, and the instruction. And so you can either have a life of mild discomfort that provides clarity and instruction, or you can have a life of no discomfort that is delusive, delusional and thwarts growth. Your choice.
0: Mm. I feel like you wanted to say more about creativity when I broached that topic a little earlier. Can you- Which, uh, which one? no just just the creative process you've written about it and i'm wondering how what role you think regret mm. plays in the creative process maybe through your the lens of your own yeah, writing i, know. Or- I
1: haven't I haven't i haven't thought that much about it i mean i do think that um, that people do have a lot of regrets about not acting on their creative impulses yeah i think that's huge actually um, and i think that um people have anticipate too many too much fear, too much regret, too much awkwardness about trying stuff about having stuff not be well received um, that that I think that we we often overstate our feelings of our prospective feelings of awkwardness and um, fears of rejection. I mean nobody likes rejection, but I think that people who have been rejected find that it is far less painful than what they imagine it to be. Even though it's still painful, so um, so I, I think that that fear that that the regret of not following our creative impulses, not answering that creative call, is is significant. I really do. And and that uh, in some ways people over anticipate their regrets of they under anticipate their inaction regrets and over anticipate their action regrets of being creative, trying creative stuff.
0: Say that one more time. They under.
1: Yeah. Sorry about that. What they, what they, what, what they, what they, they do is that they, they think that if they try stuff and it fails, they're going to regret it. And that's probably not the case because what they don't realize, if they don't try stuff, they're definitely going to regret it.
0: Mm. Mm. This, let's go back to early on in our conversation. Now you talked about this internal journey that we go on. And specifically, I'm intrigued by the ideas of, uh, of our self-talk and how brutal yeah. A and be, and you know, I I try and live by the mantra: the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves, and try and reconcile this importance of our self-talk with how otherwise brutal we are. And everyone, this is a this is not a isolated pattern. It's more common to be brutal than to not be brutal. What? Why, why are we, you know, why are we so brutal? And, you know, what can you, you've, you've, I mean, you go deeper in the book, but here in the, this, our conversation today he's like, yeah, be kind to yourself. Give me a little bit more. Cause that sounds, that's, I want more of that, but it sounds, or I guess my experience is that it's harder than, yeah. than, you know, the hand waving panacea that we're, you know, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think it's it's a couple of reasons. The first is that we sometimes we 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 compare ourselves to some imagined perfect perfect state, and so that's a game you're going to lose before the game even starts. I think that's part of it. Um, the second thing is that I think we've been seduced into believing that severe self criticism is motivating and enhancing, and the evidence is not there. Um, in in some ways, severe self-criticism is a form of, I I actually think it's a form of internal virtue signaling. Like we're saying to ourselves, look how tough I'm being, look at this. I'm a big time, look at, I'm lacerating myself. And, and we're not, we're not, um, focused on what is, what is the, what is, what is the, the effect of that? And the thing about self-compassion versus severe self-criticism is is that uh, yes, self-compassion is nicer. It's also more effective. That's the thing. It's like forget about let's forget about nice or not nice. Let's just do what's effective. And so if you were to tell me that lacerating yourself internally is the best way to improve performance, I would say, I got that down, let's go. <laughs> but what that's not what the evidence says. The evidence says that that kind of self-criticism doesn't do much for you. So, and what does do much? What does do a lot for you uh, in terms of our performance, even in terms of our physical and mental health, is self-compassion. So, if I have a choice between A and and B, and A is ineffective and B is effective. Right. I'm going to go with B most times. Feeling
0: bad and ineffective or feeling <laughs> feeling better and effective. I mean that's it's this is exactly where I want right. to get with this with this this thread. Right. It's like right. Well said, if, yeah. If those are the two choices, you can beat yourself up and be less successful and less happy or you can acknowledge um you know learn from be kinder to yourself self self-compassion and it's actually better. What would you choose? And yet, this is why I'm obsessed with this, you know, this aspect of your work is like, it's, the research says it's true. It, it's true in our own experiences empirically. Yet, why is it so hard?
1: Is it a cultural
0: narrative?
1: Could is be, it? Hmm. It could be that, um it, it could be a case where our intuitions are off, where we think that, that that harshness is more effective than kindness and that's probably true in some i mean that's certainly true in some cases but in this particular case it's it's um it's not i think the other thing is that no one's ever taught us uh no one's ever taught us how to do the other thing and so you know when i when i say that people don't know how to deal with their regrets that you know some people ignore them and some people wallow in them i don't put the onus on the individuals because no one ever teaches us how to do this kind of stuff yeah and if we teach people if we equip people with ways to process their regrets, reckon with their regrets and list their regrets as a positive force um, will make people's lives better. But I, it's not going to happen magically and organically and without any kind of effort and intention.
0: That is very well said. Um, that. And I think that's one of the reasons that this, you know, go back to why regret was powerful. And when you start to dig deep in what I did in in the case of reading mm-hmm. via PDF, I've, I've already stated once, which is very difficult, um, is in, in reading the work, it's like, God, this makes so much sense. These are tools that we should be given. Why is there so little material on this? Why does, you know, why does this concept of grief and vulnerability. And like, why doesn't it include this overarching umbrella of regret, especially again, going back to my empirical experience is that this is a thing that is universal. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Um, one, one more little pull on this thread of self-compassion. There's a, a bit in the book about normalizing and neutralizing and you know, I'm. I, I want to keep pulling on this because to say, you know, have compassion for oneself is still, you know, it's it's nebulous for most. We need actual tools, and we need to practice these tools in order to get good at them. Just like anything, those are muscles that we develop over time, and it is not natural. Maybe it's our biological, our, our biological wiring for a negativity bias, or I don't know what it is. We don't have to surmise, but this idea of normalizing and neutralizing give me 10 percent more on that
1: um well i mean what we want to do that th- those two those two things work hand in hand because when something is normalized it becomes less threatening and so therefore it's neutralized and so 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 tactically one thing you can do if you're feeling a regret is ask yourself do you, do you think you're the only person who's ever had this regret uh, are you the first person to have this regret? Or are you the only person who's had this regret? Do you know anybody else who might have this regret? And even those kind of small techniques are are really useful because I can guarantee, except for something really, really kind of bizarre and freaky, almost every regret you have is something that other people that literally tens of thousands, if not millions, of other people have. Um, and so, so ask you, so anyway, this, uh, this tactically, that's a way to do it. Are you the first person to have this regret? Probably not. Are you the only person to have this, re- this regret? Probably not. Do you know anybody else who might have this regret? Almost certainly. And that's a way to normal. It's part of the human experience. It's part of the human condition and that, and the, the act of normalizing it, as you say, neutralizes it.
0: You in doing this work came up with a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of discoveries I'm assuming and these are the things that you've put in the book. I'm wondering, I hate if if the tables are turned, I hate being asked questions like what was the most, anything that's a superlative, the most, the biggest, the best, I hate that. So I'm not going to do that to you, but I want to know were there a handful of things that were surprising in doing this work, specifically around regret that you would have assumed differently if you were just following your intuition or just, you know, writing from your own experience. Like, w- were there any paradigms that you you considered surprising?
1: I was surprised at how universal the regrets were. The kinds of things that people regretted were. I I constructed this quantitative survey that I mentioned, this giant poll, uh, with very large samples of demographic subgroups in order to make good claims about those groups and there weren't many demographic differences. Um, I did this world survey in in part to see what kind of national differences there were. There weren't that many, very, very few. I would, I think the biggest, the biggest conceptual surprise for me was the universality of what people regret all over the planet. That kind of blew me away. Um, the other thing that surprised me was, um, how relatively easy it is to confront our regrets, that it doesn't require a seven week course. It doesn't require a a year of therapy. It requires three pretty simple common sense steps. And the more we do that, the more we get better at it, the more it becomes a habit.
0: Hard to find a better place to end the conversation than the prescription. Congrats on the new book. Again, The Power of Regret, how looking backward moves us forward love your work dan thank you so much thank
1: you chase for having me back on the
0: show i really enjoyed it we're super fans here in our community and the work that you do is so directly applicable to um those of us that have chosen different paths um thanks again for doing the work that you you um are doing and i'm guessing that you may have picked that other book topic that you cast aside maybe you're working on that now we'll look forward to you i'm not You're, you already you got past that. Uh, you no regrets, I might add.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. No, I'm uh I'm not I'm not working on anything new right now. I'm 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 basically trying to make it through each day.
0: Recover from the putting this new work out into the world. Um think exactly. anyway, we you'd like to steer us besides again, we're we're good buyers of books. I think books are an incredible way to create leverage in our lives and learn from all of those surveys that you talked about and studies and and of course your your synthesis anywhere you'd steer people
1: like your website uh you can can go to my website which is danpink.com, d-a-n-p-i-n-k.com
0: thanks for being a guest we're uh we're always in your corner thanks a lot dan i'll be all right thank you chase all right signing off to everybody out there in the internet world and in your ears and eyes or however you're consuming this information until next time dan and i bid you adieu All right, that's all for today's show, but hey, before you go, I wanna say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also, I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right, I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of text, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment, but trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I wanna say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.